Uh, This is Luke chapter 15, verses 1 to 7. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Being lost is a horrible, distressing, and terrifying experience. I'm not thinking about being lost in a car because the sat-nav is always there to save the day. I'm not talking about being lost in a city because there's always someone around to ask you uh, that you can ask for directions for. No, I'm thinking about really being lost. I think back to when I was 15 or 16, I was on something akin to a Duke of Edinburgh's uh, expedition. Somehow I got separated from the rest of the group. They had the map. I didn't have a clue where I was going. And so for hours, I wandered around this forest, getting more and more disorientated, trying to find my way out. This was long before the days of mobile phones, and so I had no way of contacting anyone. And as the night began to draw in, I felt very alone. I was gripped by fear. Being lost like that is a horrible, a distressing, and terrifying experience. And what is true in a forest is true in life as well. I was struck at the beginning of last year when Vicky Patterson, the Geordie Shaw star and 2015 winner of I'm a Celebrity, uh, shows that I watch often, of course, um, posted on Instagram that she felt, and I quote, lost and scared. In an interview a few years back, Damon Hill, the 1996 Formula One world motor racing champion, talked of having an identity crisis. He said, I asked, who am I? I just thought I was lost. Famous celebrities, successful sportsmen, And I reckon more people than we realize right here in the city feel lost. A few weeks back, I I met with a delightful young man, recently arrived in the city, articulate, intelligent, handsome, well-educated. But enough about me, let me tell you about him. As um, As we sat in a coffee shop, he told me his theory of the meaning of life. He said that he was exploring the idea that maybe everything we experience is just a dream. He said... One of the strange things things about dreams is that most of the time we aren't aware we're dreaming. So what if one day we wake up and discover that none of this is real, that it's all been a dream? Now, it would be easy to listen to him and then dismiss him, even mock his theory. But as I listened, I saw before me a young man who was trying to make sense of life, a young man who was lost. At the other end of life, I think of a man I met a few years back. He had terminal cancer. He asked to meet with me to plan his funeral. He'd been immensely successful in business, but he said to me, here I am just weeks away from the end of my life, and I'm wondering what it's all been about. I've achieved everything I set out to achieve. I have a lovely home and a loving family. I've enjoyed a great career. I have more money in the bank than I need. I've traveled the world, but I'm consumed with this haunting thought that I've missed the point. Paul, he said, I'm lost. Now, as we turn to Luke chapter 15, the whole chapter is about finding lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son or two. And Jesus tells these deceptively simple but deeply profound stories 
because he was looking for lost people. Look at verse 1 again. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Uh, The first point on the handout, if you're following along the situation. Here was Jesus surrounded by people who were lost. Verse 1, tax collectors and sinners were gathering around him. The tax collectors were wealthy, but hated. They lined their own pockets at the expense of others. I guess we can all think of people in the city like them. Just think back a decade to the LIBOR scandal that rocked the city. Multiple criminal settlements revealed significant fraud and collusion by respectable city workers who were making huge profits for themselves at the expense of others. That's the tax collectors, wealthy people whose ill-gotten gain had a seriously detrimental impact on others, and so they were hated. Their actions had ruined others. They were despised, and yet they found Jesus had time for them. More than that, he befriended them. More than that, he actually loved them. And it wasn't just wealthy businessmen, verse 1. Sinners were there too. Now, now, lots of people could kind of fit into that category, but we don't have to guess who these sinners were because Luke has already introduced us to them earlier in his book. We won't look at it now, but back in chapter 7, a prostitute was given precisely this label, sinner. So here were wealthy businessmen hanging out with prostitutes. And before you think that's a strange mix, just think about some of the revelations in recent years in tabloid newspapers involving high-profile people at private parties hooking up with young women escorts. It goes on all the time. Wealthy people hanging out with those who sell their bodies for sex. Always has, always will. So seeing them together here shouldn't be a surprise to us. What is surprising shocking even, is that Jesus was there too, right in the middle of it all. Now that really is a story for the tabloid press, a religious leader hanging out with dodgy dealers and shady ladies. Not that it needed any undercover investigative journalist to unearth this story because it was all happening out in the open. Jesus wasn't keeping quiet about the company he was keeping. He was shamelessly, publicly hanging out with these undesirables. And the religious establishment were furious. That leads us to our second group that we meet here. Verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes, the the religious elite, were grumbling that this man, you see it there, receives sinners and eats with them. The religious types were indignant. Jesus wasn't simply just going down to Jerusalem's red light district to hand out Bibles to the ladies of the night. He wasn't simply a a guest speaker at a businessman's breakfast at which a number of dubious city workers had been invited by colleagues. No, Jesus was a friend of this intolerable lowlife. That's the damning accusation that had already been thrown at Jesus back in chapter 7. He's a friend of sinners. And here it is again, end of verse 2, this man receives sinners. Better, he welcomes them. Again, end of verse 2, he even eats with them. And in that culture, eating was... So it was a sign of acceptance, of welcome, of friendship. And so the respectable religious people, the Pharisees and the scribes, were outraged. And never mind the religious right wing, public opinion back then and today would say it's all wrong. Just imagine a bishop spending much of his time with prostitutes and rogue traders. It's going to raise a few eyebrows. 
So it's not hard to see why the Pharisees and scribes reacted as they did, looking down their noses and getting on their high horses, verse 2. This man receives welcome sinners. He doesn't just preach at them, doesn't just tell them to clean up their life. He even eats with them. He's their friend. And so as the religious types grumbled, verse 3, Jesus told them this parable, verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And the second point on your handout, the story. It's obvious why Jesus told this story. Here are religious people grumbling about Jesus hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. So Jesus tells them a story about a shepherd looking for lost sheep. Jesus' point, I'm the shepherd in the story, and I'm spending time with these people because they're lost. And as he tells the story, he says to the religious complainers, who wouldn't do this? Verse 4, he says, if any one of you owned a flock of 100 sheep and just one of them was lost, you wouldn't think twice about leaving the 99 behind and going looking for the lost one. And so in one brilliant line, Jesus says, why are you grumbling? Of course I'm spending time with these people because they're lost and it's horrible and it's distressing and it's terrifying being lost. And in that one brilliant line, Jesus not only justifies his actions, but he exposes theirs. Do you see what's going on? It's as if Jesus says, rather than looking down your noses at me, you should be doing exactly what I'm doing. You should be out looking for lost people too. If you do it for a lost sheep, how much more for lost people? Just think about the devastating earthquake in, in Turkey and Syria and the lengths rescue workers have gone to to find people. They'll move heaven and earth, literally moving earth and tons of rubble to find one person. Consider the human resources poured into finding Nicola Bully since she disappeared when walking her dog on a towpath along the River Wire in Lancashire. When people are lost, we go to great lengths to find them. And so we shouldn't expect any less from God. And so you see, this story tells us what God is like. When we look at Jesus, we are looking at God. And here we see that he's like a good shepherd who goes to extraordinary lengths to find lost people. Leaving the comfort, splendor and joy of heaven, he came to earth where he had no fixed abode, where he was misunderstood and misrepresented and mistaken hated, rejected by the people he came to save, betrayed by the one, one of his own followers, denied by his friends, hung out to die on a cross, rejected and alone, so alone that he cried out, my God, my God, why? Why have you forsaken me? The lengths Jesus went to to find the lost, the pain Jesus suffered to find the lost. See, look at Jesus dying on a cross and there you see just how far this good shepherd went to find lost people. Now, let me just slow down here for a moment. One writer says this chapter challenges what nearly everyone has ever thought about God. Now, if this is your first time here today, this lunchtime, thanks so much for coming. And whether it's your first time or not, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I wonder if this challenges the way you think about God. Can you hear in these verses just how much Jesus loves you. Look at the lengths Jesus went to to find you. On this Valentine's Day, let me suggest you will not find anyone who loves you more than Jesus loves you. 
Over the years, I've met many people who've been really put off church, and as one man expressed it, put off organized religion because religious types were always looking down their noses at him. You may well have felt judged by people in the church, people like these Pharisees, these scribes. And if you've experienced that kind of self-righteous judgmentalism from religious conservatives, I'm not surprised you've been turned off Jesus. If that is you, I'm so sorry that you've been on the receiving end of that kind of priggish, self-righteous, holier-than-thou behavior. It's not acceptable. And thank you for coming and giving us a try. And please, can you see that Jesus is nothing like that? Can you see that he loves you? Of course, for some of you, it's not the opinion of others that have kept you away from Jesus. It's your own opinion of yourself. In your most honest moments, you might look at the stuff in your life and feel deeply ashamed. You know, when you're alone with your thoughts, you've faced up to the fact that you, you have hurt other people. You've acted selfishly for financial gain to the detriment of others. You've treated your colleagues badly in order to climb the greasy pole of career advancement. You've done something sexual in your life that haunts you. Like, if we're honest, we all have skeletons in the closet, things we fear other people will find out about. Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, once wrote to the 12 most respectable people he knew living in London at the time. As a prank, he sent them a telegram that simply said, flee, all is revealed. Within 24 hours, six of them had left the country. Many of us have very dark secrets. And thinking that people might discover those secrets is a scary thought. But here is the more terrifying thought, knowing that God knows them. He knows everything, knows the, the secrets of our hearts. That often keeps people away from Jesus. But do you see how this challenges that way of thinking? Wonderfully, here is Jesus well aware of the ways these tax collectors and sinners have mucked up, and he's hanging out with them. Here is Jesus befriending people who've caused other people serious distress through their calculated financial indiscretions and their sexual promiscuity, and yet he loves them. Jesus welcomes people who've messed up. He wants to be friends with people who've blown it. He's for people like that, people like you, people like me. He's gone to great lengths to find us, to be our friend. Isn't that something? Now, look, I wouldn't be at all surprised if as some of you are hearing this, it is completely turning your view of Jesus upside down. And you're saying, you know, I've not really heard this before, but I want to hear some more. Well, if that is you, then, then take away this Luke's gospel and read it for yourself. Read about this this one who is described in this very gospel as a friend of sinners. Come back next week, we'll see more of this, even more of how amazing he loves you and me and people who stuff up. Uh, talk to the person you came with today. Grab me afterwards, I'd love to tell you more. First then, this story tells us what God is like. Second, for those of us who already know this, who've already you know, welcomed Jesus' friendship, then this story tells us to be like God, to be like him. Remember, Jesus told this parable to the religious right-wing conservatives of his day, not just to tell them what he was like, but to show them what they should be like. You should be looking for lost sheep. Uh, if you read on to chapter 16, verse 1, you'll see that after telling these stories about lost things, Jesus speaks to his disciples and spells out the implications of chapter, of chapter 15. It's as if in, in this first bit of chapter 16, he says, deploy your God-given resources in line with the God priorities that you've seen in chapter 15. That's how this section works. 
So this is for us, who've already sort of accepted Jesus as our friend. You know, are we deploying our resources in the way that God's priorities are? Now, I reckon our diaries and our credit card statements are a great barometer of our priorities. I think it's fair to say that here in London, most people are time poor. So when we give time to something, it says it really matters. So do our diaries reflect that the lost really matter to us? Are we carving out time, even when it's inconvenient for us, to meet with colleagues who are, aren't yet followers of Jesus? I was talking to someone the other week who said to me, honestly, it's more convenient for me to work from home. It gives me more time to myself and to my family. But then he said, being in the office is so much better for getting to know my colleagues and gives me better opportunities to share my faith with them. So I almost come, always come into the office five days a week now. Now, look, the point is not that everyone needs to come into the office five days a week. I'm not going to start telling you that. You're adults. You can work it out. But this busy city worker was prepared to be inconvenienced and give up precious time if it meant having better conversations about Jesus with his colleagues. That's time. That's putting God's priorities into his life. What about money? Do our credit card statements reflect that we are looking for the lost? We talk about putting our money where our mouth is. I was struck last term when a Christian in the city told me he was hiring a private room in a members club, in a private members club to invite 12 of his colleagues to have a great meal in lovely surroundings so that he could share the gospel with him. That cost him financially. That is putting your money where your mouth is. One way and another, this story challenges us to be going out of our way to find lost people just like the good shepherd did. And this story tells us that everyone matters. In verse 4, the good shepherd leaves the 99 sheep behind and goes looking for the lost one until he finds it. He's got 99 others, but he won't rest until he finds the lost sheep. Everyone matters again. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you matter. If you are a follower of Jesus, you matter to him. Every one of the half a million people who pour into the square mile matter to God. Everyone, every one of your colleagues. Now, look, if you've been a Christian for more than five minutes, I guess you know this story very well. I won't have told you anything you don't already know. But let's tease out what this means for us. This means that if ever we had revival in this land and 99% of people in Britain were Christian, and I mean genuinely converted and committed to Jesus, 99%, imagine 99% of your colleagues following Jesus. It would be amazing. Imagine 99% of the population going to church on a Sunday, genuinely converted, you know, multiple, multiple services in every church because the place was so full. If that happened, this story would say, go out of your way for the 1%. This story would challenge us to keep making it a priority in our lives to tell the 1% about Jesus because everyone matters. And this means that if we have 99 Christian friends and one unbelieving friend, and that often is the kind of ratio for us, then if we're going to be godly, it means not spending all our time with our 99 Christian friends. And this has been a challenge to me to go to great lengths to spend time with one unbelieving friend until they are found. In this story, then, we see what God is like. We're encouraged to be like God. Third, we're challenged, don't be like the Pharisees. Again, what prompted Jesus to tell this story was, verse 2, the grumbling of the Pharisees and the scribes. And so as Christian, we must be 
Beware that we don't become like the Pharisees. Beware the Pharisee in us. You don't have to have been a Bible reader for long to know that the Pharisees are the baddies. So if you're anything like me, whenever the Pharisees turn up on the pages of the Bible, in your heart, you're saying boo. And then reading the Bible is a bit like uh, going to a pantomime. You know how panto works, lots of audience participation. When the hero walks on, the audience cheers, hooray. Villain walks on, boo. That's how I read the Bible. Jesus walks onto the page and in my heart I'm saying, hooray. Pharisees enter, boo. And there's a sense in which that's right. But the problem with doing that is that we only ever relate to the hero. Have you noticed that? I see it when I watch films. I always relate to the hero. I love the Bourne films. Matt Damon is Jason Bourne. And so there is Jason Bourne, super cool, super fit, scared of nothing. And I think I'm like him. It's laughable. Here I am, a 60-year-old, five-foot-six-and-a-half-inch weakling who is scared of the dark, and I think I'm like Jason Bourne. We always think we're like the heroes, so when the Pharisees walk on the stage and we boo in our hearts, we don't think we're anything like them in the slightest. But as Dick Lucas said, I think from this pulpit years ago, the characters in the Bible we're most likely to become like are the Pharisees. When we become Christians, our lives begin to change, and that is good. But then we start to get all proud and we think we've cleaned up our lives and we begin to think too highly of ourselves. And it is a very short step from there to look down our noses at others, at tax collectors and sinners. And that attitude robs me of any compassion and care and concern for the lost. And I certainly don't want to be friends with them. I just find I want to spend time with my Christian friends in Christian meetings, filling my diary with Christian activities. And when that happens like Pharisees, I won't go out of my way for the lost. But here is Jesus not just looking for lost people, not just handing out leaflets to strangers or inviting people to talks about Jesus, by which I'm not saying we shouldn't do that. It's a good thing to do. But he is actually befriending them. He's very challenging. And we'll think more about this over the next two weeks. Finally, this story tells us that finding the lost brings us joy. Just look at the joy in the story. When the lost sheep is found, everyone rejoices, verse 5. And when he, the shepherd, has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 who don't need to. These verses are full of joy. The shepherd is joyful. His neighbors rejoice. The angels in heaven rejoice. Everyone's full of joy because there is so much joy when a lost person is found. Just think of those moving pictures in the last week from Turkey and Syria when we've seen someone dragged out of the rubble. The joy, nothing like it. Or imagine if Nicola Bully were to be found safe and well. The joy would be unmatched. So of course there's joy in heaven when someone has been found and saved for eternity. More joy than clinching a deal, more joy than getting a promotion at work, even more joy than digging someone out of rubble because this lasts forever. Verse seven, I tell you, there is such joy in heaven over one sinner who repents. If you're not yet a Christian again, this is how much you mean to God. Heaven rejoices when even one person turns back And if you are already a Christian, then know that looking for the lost is one of the key ways you will experience joy in your life. And that is why I don't mind encouraging people to be about this work of finding the lost. 
not just because being lost is horrible and distressing and terrifying, not just because it's godly to be looking for the lost, but because when we go looking for the lost and they are found and brought home, it brings us such joy. My time has gone. Two minutes over. Sorry. Next week, we'll, we'll look arguably at one of the most famous stories ever told. Do join us for that. Now let me lead us as we pray. Let's pray together. We thank you, um, Heavenly Father, for um, the kind of God that you are. We thank you for sending the Lord Jesus, for him going to such lengths to find lost people. We thank you, all of those of us who are Christians already, that, yeah, we one too, once were lost and you found us. And we thank you that you love even the most undesirable people like us and have died for them. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.